0: And welcome to the second hour of the Des Moines Register. This is Mary Francis. We have one birthday today, and we would like to wish a very happy birthday to Jerry Vienendahl of Pella. Happy birthday, Jerry. And now we'll uh, start taking a look at some of the articles from USA Today. First up, it shows a photo of a woman on a bus, and she is wearing a mask. And it is titled, Worlds Apart, Virus spares one neighborhood ravages the next. Infection rates higher in poor and minority areas. And this is again from USA Today, Dateline Chicago. Train tracks run above the intersection of Kinsey Street and Ashland Avenue, two major streets that meet on Chicago's west side. On one corner of the intersection, there's a trampoline park and a new brewery. On the opposite corner, empty buildings for lease. In one direction, a zip code relatively unscathed by the coronavirus outbreak. In the other, a community decimated by the disease, one mostly white with six-figure incomes the norm, one mostly minority and earning much slimmer paychecks. Darnell Shields, executive director of the Chicago Community Group, Austin Coming Together, said COVID-19's disparate impacts arise from food and housing instability, shaky neighborhood economies and limited access to quality education and health care. It creates a fertile ground for something like the virus to come in, she said. As the US surpassed a milestone of 1 million known cases of COVID-19 last week, zip code data show the virus has run rampant through some neighborhoods while leaving residents in adjoining areas much less impaired. USA Today took an exclusive look at how the pandemic has been felt in neighborhoods across the nation by collecting the zip code level data from health departments in 12 states. Those states are Arizona, California, Florida, Illinois, Maryland, Michigan, Missouri, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Texas. COVID-19 case report summaries were assembled for more than 3,200 zip codes, about 10 percent of the nearly 33,000 in the U.S. case data, were matched with census demographic data to show how infection rates differed in zip codes by race, income, and housing characteristics. The results paint a grim picture of COVID's devastation in places just miles or blocks from communities experiencing far less harm. In the poorest neighborhoods, Where median household income is less than $35,000, the COVID-19 infection rate was twice as high as in the nation's wealthiest zip codes with income more than $75,000. Infection rates were five times higher in majority-minority zip codes than in zip codes with less than 10% non-white population. Of the 10 zip codes with 10 or more cases, One in Florida, one in Michigan, the other eight in New York City. Nine are areas where at least two thirds of the residents are non white. Five are areas where household income is below the national median of $60,293. Local health officials say not all neighborhood differences in infection rates are driven by race and income. Some arise from limited access to testing sites or a lack of interest among some residents in being tested. Areas with more nursing homes may also show higher rates of infection. But the USA Today analysis shows socioeconomic factors have played important roles. The intersection of Kinsey and Ashland in Chicago marks the boundary between zip code 60642, which centers on the Noble Square neighborhood, In ZIP Code 60612, which covers much of the East Garfield Park neighborhood. In Noble Square, the virus infection as of April 20th was about 20 per 10,000 residents. In neighboring East Garfield Park, the confirmed case rate was more than four times as high, about 86 per 10,000 residents. The testing rate was also higher in East Garfield Park, but that difference does not explain its much higher caseload. Noble Square is a hub of young professionals with a restaurant and nightlife scene. Around 60% of the population is white and the median household income is about $101,900. Attorney Jane Quack, that's K-W-A-K, age 32, was out for a walk with her boyfriend and golden, golden doodle Thursday. Quote, I don't know anyone personally who's had it, she said. I feel like around here it's still a bit normal. People are acting normal. Our neighbors will still chat and aren't super fearful. East Garfield Park, meanwhile, is a family neighborhood between a conservatory and an industrial corridor. More than 78% of the population is non-white in the median household income is 41300 quack took a 15% pay cut and is working from home she considers herself lucky but in east garfield park janitor jimmy walker lost his job so did his wife rachel who was a childcare worker the walkers find themselves behind on rent they don't have any masks or gloves man we need a lot of help down here rachel walker said it's been rough Across Chicago, a similar pattern emerges. Coronavirus case rates are higher in majority-minority low-income areas. Many of those neighborhoods are food deserts, and residents lack access to broadband. Last month, the mayor launched a team to address the disproportionate impact of the outbreak. Quote, this virus is really exposing a lot of the disparities that have historically been part of these communities, even before COVID said Shields, whose group is part of the task force. Consider zip code 60621, which includes the south side Englewood neighborhood where the case rate is 70 per 10,000. Nearly 99% of the population is non-white and median household income is $20,000. Resident Tammy Smith, age 51, a home care aide, said a friend she'd known since she was a teenager recently died after contracting the virus. It has affected me, and not just me only, but family and other ones, she said while riding the bus to work. Per protocol, Smith boarded through the rear doors, wrenching them open by pulling on the rubber lining. A handful of other people, mostly African American, and wearing protective masks, sat spread out throughout the bus adjacent zip code 60620 which includes auburn gresham has the same rate of infections Quote, our community is besieged we are losing lives said carlos nelson ceo of the greater auburn gresham development corps corporation rather who called usa today from his cell phone because phone and internet was down in the neighborhood The trend is not unique to Chicago. Detroit reports 1,000 deaths and almost 9,000 cases as of Wednesday. The surge prompted a transformation of convention centers into field hospitals. Ira Carroll was standing on a milk crate to reach the top shelf of the freezer to restock the ice cream section at Saturn Superfoods in Detroit's 48228 zip code. There, the case rate is among the city's highest at 92 per 10,000 residents. Detroit's 48228 is where people come to stay. Families establish roots in the neighborhood, often staying in the area for generations. Median household income is $26,000. 84% of the population is non-white. Resident Damien Lake, age 23, suspects this unrelenting sense of community may be a contributing factor to the area's COVID-19 rates. People want to be around each other. They want to socialize. Just next door is Redford Township, zip code 48239, with about twice the median income and only one-eighth the infection rate. Denise Martin, who's lived there for 12 years, said although her community has not been hit as hard, the impact is still felt. Martin suspected she had coronavirus in February, With her severe asthma, doctors put her on a CPAP machine to aid her breathing, and she was able to recover in time for a drive-by birthday celebration for her granddaughter on April 1. Some zip codes defied the demographic trends, potentially reflecting arbitrary decisions about how cases get recorded. In Jacksonville, Florida, the San Marco neighborhood at at the heart of zip code 32207 is one of the nation's, or one of the city's most walkable. Since the outbreak shut down much of the city, the neighborhood has followed suit. Yet 3 to 207 accounted for fewer than 4% of the county's population, but 18% of the cases. A spokesman for Jacksonville's mayor said the aberration is because of the number of hospitals. State officials say they try to attribute cases to where someone lives. If they don't know the patient's address, they mark down the address for a healthcare provider or a testing lab. In nearby 32216, which is home to the St. Vincent's Southside Hospital and Memorial Hospital, the rate of confirmed cases is a quarter of San Marcos. Both neighborhoods have roughly the same population, racial makeup, median household income, and housing stock, but there are differences between the two communities. Restaurants in San Marco with a higher case rate, seem to have adapted to walk-up takeout. Restaurants in 32216, home to industrial parks and much of the city's Arabic, Latin American, and Southeast Asian shopping, say they've seen a steeper drop in foot traffic. City Councilman Matt Carlucci, a native of San Marco, has reassured residents that the big numbers do not reflect reality. If there were really an outbreak in the neighborhood, he said, he would know about it. And our next story from USA Today, uh, of course, it's more coronavirus pandemic news. A wave of subpar filters from China. Yangzhan, a tiny island in eastern China, was largely known for its culinary take on puffer, puffer fish before the coronavirus pandemic. Then, in late March, business owners and families desperate for work, began converting their workspaces into makeshift manufacturing plants to churn out one thing, the unusual fabric at the heart of the N95 and other medical-grade masks now in high demand. Making melt-blown fabric includes a complicated process of melting and blowing material into fine fibers, creating layers of webs tight enough to capture particles as small as a virus. In the span of a few weeks, locals say, hundreds of people who had never made it before were launching their own businesses. As melt-blown producers popped up and ramped up overnight, so did the problems, including substandard products, unsafe working conditions, and price gouging. The city has since since announced a crackdown on these fly-by-night manufacturers, shutting down more than 800 operations in Yangtzean. But people living there describe a booming marketplace that churned out melt-blown filter fabric for several weeks. Producing the special material, they say, was almost like printing money. No one seems to know how much was made, where it wound up, or where the business would travel next. Hometown of melt-blown fabric. Yangtzean, a city of about 34, or excuse me, 340,000 residents in Jiangsu province, Became a marketplace for melt blown fabric seemingly overnight. Social media was abuzz with it. At the end of March, Xing Chu Wei noticed a friend posting a picture on the social media site WeChat of dozens of people waiting outside the Yangshan Municipal of Administrative Examinations and Approval Bureau. So it must be a building. The caption read They are all here registering companies for making the melt-blown fabric. Wei, a business consultant, recalled that almost everyone he knew started to get involved, including those with no background in manufacturing. One, the owner of a chess room, began to sell equipment key to making the fabric, declaring his the best nozzles in the market on WeChat. The machines that used to produce other types of non-woven fabric were converted to make the melt-blown fabric. Most of these machines came from nearby cities, uh, which is one I can't pronounce, and I won't even try, about 100 miles away from Yangzhen, said a 31-year-old Weibo user, and Weibo is a site like Twitter. Her friends, she told USA Today, arranged the sales of the machines. It was full participation, she said. Ji Wang, who manufactured non-medical masks in February and now sells them, says it is not easy to make medical grade masks. They require strict production conditions like a dust-free worksite, site and filters that meet medical standards. To make the filter fabric, thousands of solid polypropylene granules are melted and extruded from nozzles into high velocity hot air streams which form the fine filaments the size of your hair. These ultra-fine fibers are bonded and collected on a moving screen, becoming a sheet of webs. It's like a spider web, multiple layers of spider web, said Bott, who has published extensive research on melt-blown fabric and the spun-bond fabric that sandwiches it in its masks. Public signs of trouble for the startups first appeared April 11th the Emergency Management Bureau accused a local melt-blown company of violating the production safety law of the People's Republic of China. The agency said the company did not post obvious safety warnings on its air compressor and had not put its employees through safety training. The next day, the Emergency Management Agency found a hotel had violated fire ordinance by using some of its rooms to manufacture the melt-blown fabric. Yangtzean hotels housed buyers, too. Rooms were fully booked in early April at the biggest hotel, a hotel front desk clerk told USA Today. License plates on cars lined up outside indicated their drivers had come from hundreds of miles away. Different people with different accents gathered here talking about the same thing, that melt-blown fabric, Chang reported. In a photo she took to accompany her story, a parked truck was loaded with bags of polypropylene granules for sale. A red and yellow banner that covered its side read, The Dedicated Polypropylene for Melt-Blown Fabric, and it included the seller's name and phone number. Almost as quickly as the industry appeared, it disappeared. Mounting concerns about the quality of the product brought its melt-blown fabric manufacturing to a grinding halt. A 95% filtration rate is required for medical grade surgical masks, according to the American Society of Testing and Materials. High protection masks like N95s should have a rate of 98% or higher. Yangzhan's Administration for Market Regulation randomly tested fabric from eight manufacturers of melt-blown fabric in early April. When the agency's report came out later, five of the samples met neither standard and only two could be used for high-protection masks. Three were not even close, filtering out only 45% or less. On April 14th, the city noted that it had been pushing to overhaul illegal melt-blown production since late March and issued warnings to 225 enterprises who were making or selling 3 no textiles, which are products without production date, name of manufacturer, and sanitary certificate. So that must be a classification of textiles. The next day, the city went further, shuttering 867 melt-blown businesses. Wei was surprised to see his hometown pop up as a hot search on Weibo for a post reporting that hashtag all Zhang companies that produce the melt-blown fabric shut down for rectification. But wiping out the melt-blown industry in Yangtzean won't likely be the end of it, according to dozens of experts in the industry contacted by USA Today. They included manufacturers, investors, and traders. The demand is just too great. Even as the city cracked down on all the fabric production, Wei said, melt-blown makers loaded their machines into their cars and transferred them to nearby cities. In China, the largest exporter of medical masks in the world, about 4,000 new companies have registered to manufacture or trade melt-blown fabric since the beginning of the year. Last year, only about 300 new companies registered melt-blown fabric businesses. Masks that leave China through official channels go through extensive certification intended to prevent exports of substandard material. Entering the United States adds another layer of scrutiny, but there are other routes. Relatively small orders can be sent through the mail. In late March, Wang said he sold 25,000 non-medical masks to Gannett, the parent company of USA Today, and shipped them through UPS to five company locations without customs declarations. Last week, 2,000 counterfeit 3M masks made in China were found at the DHL Express Hub in Kentucky. Those were found by U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers. The controls are not foolproof. U.S. healthcare systems asked to put money down in advance took shipments only to find that the quality of the items were substandard. <clears throat> and that comes from Premier Inc., a group purchasing organization that purchases for more than 4,000 hospitals. Steve Keats, a partner in Kestrel Liner Agencies, said China began to get complaints internationally about substandard quality on masks, and that led to a crackdown on the manufacturers. Because of all the bad press on China over substandard quality, all of a sudden, China has stepped up their inspections of quality control. Now they're making exporters jump through hoops to make sure the quality meets a certain standard. In February, the average retail price for the fabric in China increased by 10, tenfold, according to China Merchants Securities. I would say what we're seeing today is exactly what every economist who has studied anything about markets knew would happen, said Gary Huffbauer, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute of International Economics. If you go back and read the history of World War II or World War I or the Korean War, any war, You always get this kind of short supply of certain items, and then middlemen pop up and take advantage of it. Du Chen, who invested in her friend's mask manufacturing plant, said for days that they complained in their group chat about the shortage of non-woven polypropylene. Chen reached out to several fabric sellers in late February. The cheapest price cited then was 160,000 yuan per ton, eight times what it was before the pandemic. And the seller asked me to pick up the fabric myself. Recently, the Chinese government began cracking down on melt blown price gouging. The government also has punished individuals and companies who make or sell substandard or counterfeit masks. In Yangjiang, officials set up checkpoints to prevent the melt blown fabric from being transported or sold in other places but no one pays much attention to the machines that created the fabric. Mask manufacturers loaded their machines in their trunks and headed to other cities, where the city officials might not be watching yet. One-sided an operation transported to Hainan province, which is hundreds of miles northwest of Yangshan While the melt-blown machines and buyers are gone, slogans on banners created by local communities in Yangshan are still hanging there. One reads, quote, please don't follow the melt-blown fabric trend blindly. And that article from USA Today. Next up, virus kills five FedEx workers in New Jersey. This is from USA Today. Dateline, Newark. Pamela Pope spent her days doing a mix of work at FedEx's Newark Liberty International Airport from office work to deliveries and helping unload cargo from the dozens of planes flying in and out every day. It was a job she loved and one the 56-year-old from Neptune, New Jersey, had done for more than half her life. But as coronavirus cases began to spread among her co-workers, fears of contracting the virus dominated her thoughts. Today, I am scheduled off work and am grateful, she wrote, in a cousin to a cousin, in a text message, my FedEx location has nothing for me. They said they ordered stuff for us, but it was backordered, question mark. In this stage, we can't find masks, the bacterial gloves, sanitizer, nothing, cousin, and we are required to be at work. She became really afraid to even go to work, said her sister Debbie Hyman, who said Pope brought her own masks, gloves, and cleaning supplies to work. Pope died of coronavirus on April 25th, her sister said. She's not the only FedEx worker whose symptoms have turned fatal. The day before, eight FedEx Express domestic workers' deaths were cited in an internal document obtained by the Memphis Commercial Appeal and Bergen Record. At least five fatalities have occurred in Newark, according to family members who spoke with reporters from both newspapers. The death of a sixth person, identified as a FedEx Newark worker on her personal LinkedIn and Facebook accounts, also was attributed to COVID-19 complications in the social media posts of family members. Attempts to reach that family were unsuccessful. FedEx confirmed in a statement that, quote, some of its Newark employees have tested positive for for COVID-19, with most of them receiving treatment or having recovered from the disease. We are deeply saddened that a small number of team members have succumbed to the virus or complications related to it, FedEx said in a statement. We have been in contact with these families to offer our deepest condolences. Interviews with multiple family members and FedEx workers, coupled with a trail of complaints filed with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, reveal a pattern of allegations that there was little and often delayed communication with FedEx workers about whether they had contact with a positive colleague, personal protective equipment has been lacking and insufficient, or no cleaning took place at sites where people who tested positive worked. A few days before Pope's death, Clara Newkirk, who logged cargo data at the Newark site, died at age 70, according to her daughter. A 24-year FedEx veteran, Newkirk came home coughing from her last day of work before a two-week leave of absence that she decided to take to reduce her risk of exposure, her daughter said. She was sweet, a hard worker. She loved FedEx, her daughter said. During that leave, FedEx sent Newkirk's supervisor an email that she'd been exposed to a coworker who tested positive. They should have called and told her. They dropped the ball, said Newkirk Miller who believes that her mother might have received care sooner if she had known someone had tested positive. FedEx said it, quote, "...has found no objective evidence to suggest our employees are at any greater risk than the surrounding community, and we continue to assess each confirmed case of our employees in detail." It pointed to the high overall number of cases in the New Jersey and New York areas, saying positive COVID-19 tests among its employees were in line with state infection trends. New Jersey has the second highest number of deaths and known positive cases of coronavirus in the country, behind neighboring New York. Essex County, where New York is located, has the highest number of deaths in the state at 1,240 as of May 1st, and the third highest number of positive cases compared with the state's 20 other counties. The Newark Hub at Newark Liberty International Airport handles regional sorting and processing for FedEx Express's global delivery network. The facility can sort up to 156,000 documents and packages per hour. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, FedEx said it is diverting package volume away from Newark to quote, promote social distancing. And limit the number of people working at the hub. Dean McCuba of consulting service Logistics, Trends, and Insights worked at FedEx in various positions including an aircraft ramp operations management for more than 35 years. He said FedEx should or could shut down a regional hub like Newark and redirect those packages to its larger hubs in Memphis and Indianapolis in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Because of that, FedEx is better positioned to handle an outbreak in its air network than its rivals UPS or Amazon. FedEx is more able to respond to ad hoc circumstances because their air network and resources are just so vast compared to rivals UPS and Amazon, he said. At least 464 of FedEx Express's U.S. employees have contracted the virus, according to figures in the internal company report obtained by newspapers. FedEx did not dispute this. FedEx Express employed around 112,000 domestic workers as of 2019, which is part of FedEx's overall U.S. workforce of 293,000. The 70-acre Newark location has about 2,000 employees. Workers in at least 13 states have filed at least 24 complaints related to FedEx COVID-19 workplace safety that the Federal Occupational Safety and Hazard and Health Administration has closed as of April 22nd. When OSHA data shows that another 45 investigations involving as yet undisclosed employers categorized as courier courier services were underway. Some of the allegations raised in those complaints to OSHA include complaints about a lack of or insufficient cleaning on company property, including instances after workers tested positive, little enforcement or encouragement for social distancing, concerns about not being notified about positive cases at work, no training, for employees about safe working conditions or procedures during a pandemic. And in some cases, cleaning or protective equipment was not provided, including masks, sanitizers, gloves, bathroom soap, and cleaning supplies. OSHA wrote that it would not provide the findings of its investigations into the FedEx worker complaints. The agency had closed as of April 22nd, unless a Freedom of Information Act request was filed. A spokesperson person said inspectors do not close complaints for which citations have been identified, though inspectors can use discretion in deciding not to issue a citation if they believe the employer is acting in good faith. The complaints echo the claims of multiple whistleblowers at FedEx's main hub in Memphis and concerns sent to the office of Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. In a letter sent Friday to FedEx Chairman and CEO Fred Smith, Booker said he was, quote, deeply troubled by reports of FedEx Newark hub workers contracting COVID-19 and several having died from the disease. Booker urged the company to take immediate and decisive action to properly enforce and strengthen social distancing policies, expand access to PPE, enhance sanitizing practices, and drastically improve transparency and communication with workers, if reports around the country on FedEx workplace safety shortcomings are accurate. For its part, FedEx said in a statement that it has made several safety improvements at the Newark hub. Quote, we are conducting temperature screenings for all team members, vendors, and visitors entering the Newark hub. We are providing personal protective equipment to all team members, masks and gloves required, Enhancing sanitation process, practices with more frequent deep cleanings of common areas and vehicles. FedEx notifies employees, customers, and vendors who may have had close contact contact, as defined by CDC guidelines, with an employee with COVID-19 according to its statement. Employees in close contact are contract, are contacted contacted rather, by FedEx, and asked to call a doctor and self-quarantine for 14 days, the company said. FedEx did not respond when asked how soon its employees are contacted after possible contact with someone who had tested positive. While some of these changes have been made in recent weeks, more could be done, said several workers who asked that their identities be protected because they feared retribution. Some personal protective equipment is now being provided, a worker said, with N95 masks going to some departments but not others. One ramp worker said they receive one, maybe two surgical masks per week, and the gloves break easily during a shift that includes moving heavy cans of parcels or freight on and off planes and operating machinery. FedEx said in a statement that it has provided, clear and frequent communication that reinforces the importance of personal hygiene self-monitoring for symptoms, and staying home when unwell. But workers say the process of notifying them about when they have been around peers who have tested positive has been uneven. Some workers said they received notifications from headquarters about people in their work area tested po- testing positive. But in some cases, they were told more than a week later. Then they were told to quarantine for the remaining days of the CDC suggested 14 days after contact. Others say they have not received any notifications at all. They try not to say much when it comes to the virus. They don't really want to talk about it, a worker said. As their ranks have tested positive, died, and others go out on leave, some have begun to feel scared and nervous for their well-being. These guys have been working for FedEx for years. I mean years. And we lose them, but nobody wants to talk about it, one worker said. They just want to keep producing, keep people in the boxes, keep people on the cans. If one person goes down, there's another guy to take its place, take his place. That's how I feel. And now we'll go over to the Des Moines Register for opinions. This opinion comes from, uh, this is the Your Turn column. This opinion is from Susan Bartlett Hackenmiller, who is a Cedar Falls physician. And she writes, months after caucuses, Iowa again is infamous. My jaw dropped as I listened to Governor Kim Reynolds broadcast her priorities to the world April 20th, the death count rising as she spoke. Addressing the pandemic's impact on the Waterloo Tyson meatpacking plant, she stated, making sure, most importantly, that we're keeping that food supply chain moving. Emphasis was hers on most importantly. Most importantly, am I alone in believing that human lives are most important? It is an astonishing fact that 44% of workers at the Waterloo Tyson plant have tested positive for the COVID-19, according to an April 27th statement by the Black Hawk County's public health director. National news outlets are referring to Iowa as one of the fastest growing outbreaks on the planet said Rachel Maddow of MSNBC on April 29th. Yet, at the same time, President Donald Trump issues an executive order for meat processing plants to remain open during the pandemic, and Reynolds announces that workers fearing for their health will lose unemployment benefits if they refuse to return to the assembly line. The unintended consequence of these short-sighted, dangerous actions is that people of color are disproportionately put in harm's way, and are suffering greater loss of life than the white population. COVID's disturbing reality is this. Non-white people are sicker and more likely to die than white people. Nationwide, people who work in meat packing plants are more likely to be people of color than white. As an Iowa physician, I can say that the writing was on the wall. In this state where many said it would never happen, It is most definitely happening. I've cared for patients in inner-city Pittsburgh, in impoverished Vanuatu, and in many types of settings in between. Over my 20-year career, rural Iowans are the sickest patients I have ever cared for hands down. My patients' lists of chronic conditions and medications shock me every day. By culture and tradition, Iowans are meat and potato people. Landlocked with a short growing season, seafood and produce are hard to come by, especially if money is tight. Inexpensive processed and fast food has become the mainstay for people of all ethnicities who are too exhausted to cook after work. So malnutrition is rampant here. I know because I check. Exhaustion and stress mean less exercise and less sleep. This is the perfect recipe for obesity, high blood pressure, and type 2 diabetes, the top three pre-existing conditions that increase the risk of death from COVID-19. People in communities of color statistically lack access to green spaces, are more likely to smoke, and more likely to live where there is poor air quality. These are all known risk factors for lung diseases, which in turn increase the risk of contracting and dying from COVID. Add to the mix factors like low income, multi-generational households, language barriers, lack of access to health care, and lack of sick leave. Then put people shoulder to shoulder on a line with no personal protective equipment, and voila, outbreak. Iowa has become infamous this year, a botched caucus, and now this perfect storm. Our governor's inept preparation and response to COVID 19 is shameful. Let us advocate for better health for all Iowans, better conditions for all workers, and better leadership from our effect- elected officials. Be a public servant, not a politician, Governor. The people putting food on your table deserve better. Most importantly, let's protect human lives. And that was your turn, submitted by Suzanne Bartlett Hackenmiller, who is a Cedar Falls physician. And just for Kirsten Lundgren, my favorite listener, here's a description of the um, political cartoon on the opinion page. It shows kind of a worn down donkey in a suit. Um, And the uh, speech bubble says, our party's nominee has been accused of assault and the election is almost here. And then it shows the donkey in the next frame holding a magic eight ball and glaring at it. And the thought bubble says magic eight ball, how do we stop Trump and become popular? The next frame, it shows the donkey shaking the ball frantically. And then it shows the donkey looking as the eight ball says, honesty is the best policy. And then in the final frame, it shows the donkey throwing the eight ball aside and saying, Oh, well, At least Bernie is now off the ballot. And that cartoon is from Joey Weatherford of the Tribune. Now I'll move to letters to the editor. This first letter is from Deb McMahon of Des Moines. And it's titled, Trump's Abysmal Performance. Regarding the letter, media insist on dividing us while Trump focuses on healing from April 29. Once again, I read another letter to the editor, praising Trump and denigrating the media. The truth is that Trump has done an unbelievable job handling the coronavirus, unbelievably bad. He refused to listen to the briefings. He called it a democratic hoax. He lies every day and the Republican party has decided to play their part by standing idly by in silence. Trump's lack of empathy is on display with his, quote, press briefings slash rallies. The media's job is to garner the facts, something that is an anathema to Trump. The facts are indisputable. He is a bully and, carries, and cares only about his reelection. It is time for the Trump supporters to see the folly of their ways. And that letter to the editor by Deb McMahon of Des Moines. Up next, a letter from Herb Strenz of Urbandale titled, It All Fits. Governor Kim Reynolds' assessment of the status of her handling of the COVID crisis, isn't this great? Makes sense if you recall she has also introduced Mike Pence as the greatest vice president in U.S. history. And that submitted by Herb Stranz of Urbandale. The next from Jill Martinez of Cedar Rapids. And she writes, we need test data by county. I like the message that we are all in this together, and I want to give Governor Governor Reynolds the benefit of the doubt. However, I have one burning question for her. Why isn't Iowa sharing data on testing for a county by county basis? Since we are tracking different county infection rates to make decisions, testing needs to be part of the equation in plans to reopen. For instance, in the past several days, the reported new cases of COVID-19 in Linn County appear to be diminishing. Is it possible that we are flattening the curve? I've been unable to find testing numbers on a county-by-county basis. We must ask ourselves, does Linn County's drop in new cases reflect a lower, lowered infection rate or simply less testing? I understand there may be a need to divert testing capabilities to an area in crisis. But why no transparency? And that's from Jill Martinez of Cedar Rapids. Up next is from Richard Safras of Johnston. Uh, full disclosure, he was my fifth grade teacher. When schools come back, no age-based grade levels, please. He writes, here is a positive idea to balance all of the negatives besieging us. This is the perfect time for school systems to do away with age-based grade levels. It would solve so many problems on both ends of the educational spectrum, socially, emotionally, and academically. We don't even have to tell the kids what grade they are in or where they should be next fall, only that they are in the right place for them. Blame it on the virus, blame it on the money, blame it on a teacher shortage, blame it on me. I don't care, just do it. It's the right time and the right thing to do. And that's from Richard Safris of Johnston. Next opinion is Your Turn. This is submitted by Patrick Pazella, who is U.S. Dep- Deputy Secretary of Labor. And it's entitled, Keeping America's Workers Safe from COVID-19. He writes, the coronavirus is an unprecedented challenge that has affected every part of, an Amer- of American life, including how we stay safe, and healthy in the workplace. While many Americans are performing essential work now in our hospitals, grocery stores, and manufacturing plants, we hope many more will soon return to other workplaces as we thoughtfully reopen our economy. Under President Donald Trump's whole of America approach, we are successfully fighting the coronavirus. Now we are beginning to look toward reopening our country The Trump administration has released guidelines to safely open America again, and critical to its success is ensuring workers and employers are prepared and protected. The Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, is at the forefront of these efforts. OSHA's aim during the coronavirus pandemic has been twofold. The agency has worked to provide clear guidance and compliance assistance to business owners, so that employers can be confident in the steps they're taking to protect workers. OSHA is also ensuring that employers provide their employees with the protections required by law. Together, these aims reflect a balanced approach that protects the worker, guides the employer, and reassures both, the, both by illuminating the path forward. OSHA is mindful that it can be difficult for employers to understand the best ways to protect their workers from the unique threat caused by the coronavirus. To help employers address these challenges, OSHA has provided extensive guidance that provides businesses with clarity and assurance as they seek to comply with the law. Since January, OSHA has been providing resources and information relevant to the coronavirus in the workplace in coordination with other federal agencies, such as the CDC. From our detailed guidance to help businesses prepare their workplace for COVID-19, to our alerts for specific industries like construction and retail, our guidance documents provide a roadmap for employers. Our guidance also includes an occupational risk pyramid to help any employer or worker determine what actions they need to take To prevent exposure. Many of our materials are available in Spanish as well. OSHA has also issued a series of common sense guidance documents and enforcement policies aimed at expanding the availability of respirators for frontline workers. By providing this guidance we are helping employers understand the steps to take to protect their workers and we are also giving businesses the confidence that in taking these steps they will be doing what can be reasonably, reasonably expected of them by OSHA and by their workforce. This balanced approach helps prepare employers and workers for the thoughtful phased reopening of the economy by states and localities. Employers have a responsibility under existing OSHA rules to provide safe workplaces for employees And this responsibility applies as much today as it did before the COVID-19 outbreak. OSHA has the tools it needs to hold employers accountable if they expose workers to the coronavirus by disregarding appropriate safety practices. Given the fluid situation surrounding the transmission and containment of COVID-19 and how those challenges and solutions vary in different workplaces, OSHA is not issuing new regulations, but rather ensuring existing requirements are followed. The President is committed to ensuring worker safety during this time, and OSHA is playing a key role supporting this commitment. OSHA has heard from workers who have concerns about coronavirus in their workplaces. We have made all of OSHA's more than 750 inspectors available. To address complaints about the virus and have already handled more than 2,500 complaints. Just weeks ago, American workers were enjoying record low unemployment and rising wages in the midst of what President Trump hailed as a blue-collar boom. The coronavirus forced us to pause that economy. Giving workers and employers confidence about measures to contain the virus is an important step in reinvigorating the economy once again. And that was submitted by Patrick Pizzella, who is a U.S. Deputy Secretary of Labor. And now I'm jumping back to USA Today to their opinion page. And this is submitted by Michael J. Stern. The title is I'm a Skeptic on Biden Assault Claim. And he writes, During 28 years as a state and federal prosecutor, I prosecuted a lot of sexual assault cases. The vast majority came early in my career when I was working at an office outside Detroit. A year ago, Tara Reid accused former Vice President Joe Biden of touching her shoulder and neck in a way that made her uncomfortable when she worked in his Senate office in 1993. Then this March, Reid told an interviewer, that Biden stuck his hand under her skirt and forcibly penetrated her with his fingers. It's not true, Biden said Friday, it never happened. My default response is to believe women who make these accusations. But as the news media have investigated, I've become increasingly skeptical about Reed's claims and here's why. Number one, delayed reporting twice. I understand that victims of sexual assault often do not come forward immediately to recount the most violent and degrading experience of their lives. <clears throat> Excuse me. That so many women were willing to tell their stories in my dreary government office, then wait as I ran to the restroom to pull myself together, is a testament to their fortitude. Even so, it's reasonable to consider a reporting delay when assessing the believability of any criminal allegation. Reed waited 27 years to publicly discuss the alleged sexual assault. As recently as April 2019, in an interview with the Union newspaper in California, she accused Biden of touching her in a sexual way that made her uncomfortable, but she neglected to claim that he forcibly penetrated her with his fingers. Number two, implausible explanation for changing story. When Reed went public this March, she said she had wanted to do it last year in the newspaper interview, but the reporter's tone made her uncomfortable and, quote, I just really got shut down, unquote, and didn't tell the whole story. It's hard to believe a reporter would discourage this kind of scoop. Regardless, it's also hard to accept that it took Reed 12 months to find a reporter interested in her bombshell. Number three, people who contradict Reed's claim. After the alleged assault, Reed said she complained about harassment to Marianne Baker, Biden's executive assistant, and top aides Dennis Toner and Ted Kaufman. All three recently told the New York Times that she made no complaint to them, and their denials were firm, not the standard, I don't remember any such complaint. I never once witnessed or heard of or received any reports of any conduct by Biden, period. Baker said, that was a quote I never once witnessed, heard of, received any reports of inappropriate conduct by Biden, period. Baker said that and added that a complaint like that from Reed, quote, would have left a searing impression on me as a woman, professional, and as a manager. <clears throat> Next, missing formal complaint. Reed told the Times she filed a written complaint against Biden with the Senate Personnel Office, but the Times could not find any complaint. When the Times asked Reed for a copy, she said she did not have it. Next, memory lapse. Reed said she could not remember the date, time, or exact location of the alleged assault. This makes it impossible for Biden to prove innocence. If Reed alleged Biden assaulted her on the afternoon of June 3, 1993, he might be able to prove that he was on the Senate floor or at the dentist. Her lack of recall could be perceived as bulletproofing a false allegation. Losing her job. Reed told the union that Biden wanted her to serve drinks at an event. After she refused, quote, she felt pushed out and left Biden's employ unquote, the newspaper said in 2019 in April. But Reed claimed this April in her Times interview that after she filed a sexual harassment complaint with the Senate Personnel Office, she faced retaliation and was fired. Those are very different explanations. Next, compliments for Biden. In the 1990s, Biden worked to pass the Violence Against Women Act. In 2017, on multiple occasions, Reed retweeted or liked praise for Biden and his work combating sexual assault. It is bizarre that Reed would publicly laud Biden for combating the very thing she would later accuse him of doing to her. Rejecting the next, rejecting Biden, embracing Sanders. By this January, Reed was all in for presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. In an article on Medium, Reid referred to Biden as, quote, the blue version of Trump, unquote. She claimed that her decision to publicly accuse Biden of inappropriately touching her was due to, quote, the hypocrisy that Biden is supposed to be the champion of women's rights, unquote. Next, swings on Russia and Putin. In 2017, Reid condemned Russian leader Vladimir Putin's efforts to hijack U.S. democracy in the 2016 election. But in November 2018, she trashed the United States as a country of, quote, hypocrisy and imperialism and, quote, a corporate autocracy. She referred to Putin as an athletic, quote, genius who is, quote, intoxicating to American women. In March 2019, Reed dismissed the idea of Russian interference in the 2016 election as hype. This April, Reed told the Times that she, quote, did not support Putin, and that her comments were pulled out of context from a novel she was writing. But these and similar quotations are from political opinion pieces that she published. Next, suspect timing. For 27 years, Reed did not publicly accuse Biden of sexually assaulting her. But then Biden's string of March primary victories, threw Sanders off his seemingly unstoppable path to the Democratic nomination. On March 25th, as Sanders was pondering his political future, Reid finally went public with her claim. The confluence of this timing, Reid's support of Sanders and her distaste for traditional U.S. democracy, epitomized by Biden, should give pause to even the most strident Biden critics. Next, the Larry King call. A recorded call surfaced recently by an anonymous woman to CNN's Larry King live show in 1993. Reed says the caller was her late mother. The caller said her daughter had, quote, problems with a prominent senator she worked for and chose not to go to the press, quote, out of respect for him. I've never met a woman who stayed silent out of respect for the man who sexually assaulted her. Next point lack of similar claims. The Times and the Post found no allegation of sexual assault against Biden except Reed's. It's possible that Biden committed this one sexual assault, but in my experience, men are accused more than once. Donald Trump has faced more than a dozen allegations. There are no eyewitnesses or videos to support Reed's claim. Jurors in this case, the voting public will have to assess whether it is credible and whether Reed herself is believable. I do not want this piece to be used as a guidebook to dismantling legitimate allegations of sexual assault. But not every claim is legitimate. I can remember dismissing two cases because it felt the defendant had not committed the crime. One was a rape charge. In the end, the woman making the claim acknowledged that she fabricated it after her boyfriend caught her with a man with whom she was having an affair. I know that believe women is the mantra of the new decade. It is a response to a century of ignoring and excusing men's sexual assaults against women, but we should not be forced to blindly accept every allegation of sexual assault for fear of being labeled a misogynist or enabler. Men and women can support the Me Too movement and not support sexual assault allegations that do not ring true. If these two positions cannot coexist, The movement is no more than a hit squad. and That's not how I see Me Too. It's too important to be no more than that. And that opinion written by Michael J. Stern, who is a member of USA Today's Board of Contributors and was also a federal prosecutor for 25 years in Detroit and Los Angeles. And that does it for the second hour of the Des Moines Register for today, May 4th. Uh, we'll take a brief break, and then up next will be today's obituaries. Mm-hmm.